Welcome to the Pet Cash Pod. I'm your host, Andrew Petcash. This is the third episode of my series where I interview founders, investors, athletes, and the smartest people in sports. Today's guest is Nick Asayian. He's the CEO and founder of Light Helmets. He was also a professional race car driver for nearly 20 years and has built a handful of other companies. We talk about an array of interesting things, including why they believe protective headwear should be lighter, politics and athletics, how NIL is impacting equipment companies in sports, the go-to-market strategy for a complex product like a helmet, and an array of other interesting topics, including where sports is headed in the future. I took a lot away from this conversation and think you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Let's dive in. Nick, I appreciate you coming on. You have a fascinating background. You're building a really cool company at the center of football and future of sports. If you can just give us a little bit of your background and what you're up to right now. Sure. Thanks for having me on today, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Love all your work. Um, you know, my background is I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, you know, I was always a football fan. And uh, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, played a little D3 football there, um, played on the Milwaukee Express, and then went to something a little bit safer, professional auto racing after that. Uh, you know, obviously helmets are important in, in both those verticals. I've ridden dirt bikes and done a whole variety of other things, but uh, I worked for the Xerox Corporation out of college. I have an undergraduate degree in marketing from the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater, an MBA from Redlands University here in California. I work for Bain Capital, and uh, I race automobiles professionally for about 27 years in uh, the Pirelli World Challenge in the IMSA series. And uh, I started an infomercial company, actually, in 2000. And grew it and it got to be a pretty big company, coming up with ideas, selling them on TV, things that people needed, whether it was how to get out of debt or exercise equipment, skin care. We had a coin collection that uh, showcased like the, the guys that killed bin Laden from, from the Navy SEALs. And we had some guys from Coronado help us. We donated a bunch of money to charity there. But my passion since 2018 has been uh, this helmet company. And we bought uh, SG helmets from Bill Simpson and Chip Ganassi, who are big in the race space, if you've ever heard of Simpson Racing, uh, that was the, the predecessor company that Bill owned, and he's no longer with us, but they had a lot of luck in this space selling helmets um, at all levels of play. And Jeff Saturday, actually, and uh, Freeney were wearing this helmet, and we bought the assets in 2018. Yeah, it's an incredible background with, obviously, racing, but helmets so important. You just dive a little bit deeper now into light helmets what you're aiming to do, what you're currently doing, and uh, just the helmet space as a whole. And we'll start to pick deeper into some of the topics as you lay the groundwork. So, you know, when you look back, let's say, at auto racing, there was a huge, like, transformation in the 70s and 80s to, you know, full-face helmets and uh, different race seats and window nets and things like that. And we started to see some of that in, in football. And, uh, you know, concussions obviously have been on everybody's radar over the last 10 years or so. But the players union sued the NFL. There was a big lawsuit. They had to do a variety of things. There was compensation, insurance, rule changes, helmet technology had to be pursued in some helmet testing. Concurrent to that, you know, this is a tough space to get in because it's expensive to do the R&D to make football helmets. Um, you got to go through the whole process of what's novel about my product. I don't want to step on anybody else's patents or intellectual property because they'll sue the shit out of you. Like Riddell has sued shut twice, once for $26 million bucks, and more recently, I think the second one was like for $5 million. You can't just – there's not insurance for, hey, I got the shit sued out of me because you know, I thought my patent read one way and someone else thought it read another way. And some of the patents that are even held are crazy. So you got to avoid that. 
So there's a lot of barriers to entry into this space, and people are worried about product liability, rightfully so, right? You know, football's a violent sport. Um, you know, th things happen on the field that no helmet is going to protect against, not ours, not anybody else's. But that being said, when you look at where helmet technologies really race forward is in the war on terror, right? I mean, a lot of money got spent in the military. Military migrated from like metal and plastic back in the late 80s. And they had the original Kevlar helmet. And since then, it's got lighter and smaller. And they spent a lot of money spent to maximize that technology. Uh, the helmet in a joint strike fighters, a couple million bucks when you had all the electronics in it. Um, we decided, hey, let's take that technology and what we know from Simpson and Ganassi and racing and the military. Uh, we've got some military owners here, a couple guys from SEAL Team 5, some combat controllers from the Air Force. And let's coalesce that with the knowledge that our doctors have. we got about 15 docs right now that are on our advisory board, neurologists, wow. et cetera. And let's come up with a novel football helmet. But the premise of the whole thing is these materials weigh less. And, you know, there's not a single person that can spell football that doesn't know that Tua hit his head on the ground or that Russ Wilson yesterday hit his head on the ground or that uh, Pickett from the Steelers got slung down and hit his head on the ground. Football's done a great job over the last few years of getting rid of head-to-head -head contact by, hey, you can't lower your head. You can't target a guy. You can't hit the defenseless receiver. We're getting rid of the kickoff, in essence, right? Like we gained it by moving it so that, you know, Chester Markle could kick the thing out of the back of the end zone. But you can get rid of that, but you can't get rid of head to ground or anything else. And now you're starting to see people, holy shit, like these head to ground impacts are, are huge um, and they're debilitating. And um, so we're focused on that. Um, We've got three helmets, two youth helmets, and a, an adult helmet or a varsity helmet. We got a great flag football headgear and a soccer headgear. All of them have the highest rating from Virginia Tech, who is kind of an independent lab, like the consumer reports of uh, testing stuff, helmets. And they test all sorts of helmets. And we plan on taking that technology and migrating it through hockey, lacrosse, uh, e-bike, construction, and some other sports as well. Yeah, I want to talk about the Virginia Tech Lab a little bit because I've seen some studies. You guys have one of the top-rated helmets according to Virginia Tech, but you're not on the NFL's list of their verified helmets, which doesn't allow you to NFL players to wear any of your helmets. Can you just dive a little bit deeper into those studies and potentially why some of the outcomes are the way they are? So there's really three organizations that look at let's say football helmets, let's, we'll keep it to that. So there's Noxy, and that's really a kind of a pass fail. Every youth helmet, varsity helmet, NFL helmet, college, high school has to pass this Noxy standard or meet the Noxy standard. And there's some basic drop tests. And then they make sure that the company's uh, supply line is in order that they can audit. Uh, if they have a defect, they, they can do recalls and things like that. And all the companies do a, a pretty good job of navigating that. And I'm not big on regulation. But it's important to have some sort of bar that we all have to meet. And uh, it's funded by the manufacturers. Um, that organization did two studies. And they're at University of Ottawa and at Virginia Tech. So I'm going to get back to the Virginia Tech component of it. And the study showed that for youth sports, these football helmets should be under three and a half pounds. And that's been the standard now that's adopted, but it hasn't been put in place yet because some of the manufacturers are still making five pound kid helmets 
So imagine if you've got a 60 pound kid and he's wearing a six pound helmet, it's 10% of his body weight. That's like me wearing a 25 pound weight plate on my head. Like, what do you think is going to happen? And the fact that we kicked the can down the road on this topic with kids is bad enough. But when you look at it, it, let's say you've got Virginia Tech, their test doesn't even really take into consideration weight in that if I push you back 10 times and you hit your head, uh, just like a whip, right? Or just like a two pound hammer versus a one pound hammer, there's less kinetic energy and that you have to resist when you're falling back, when you have a heavy football helmet on, when you've been pushed by someone else. And, you know, we know that Noxie's done some studies that validate, at least for kids, that that's the case. But the biomechanics of an adult are the same. So not even Virginia Tech, they don't take that into consideration either. But their testing protocols are different than Noxie's and the NFL. Now, the NFL... Um, there's more politics there. There's more money there. Virginia Tech has got an independent lab that operates within the university. They don't make a ton of money doing it. They're trying to do a service. You have to have uh, some type of testing protocol. Otherwise, you don't have a test that you can replicate the events, right, to be able to gauge one helmet against the other. And our helmets do really well there. And But then in the NFL, there'll be helmets that are number 30 or 28 on the Virginia Tech list. And they're on the field. And then I got my helmet that weighs, you know, a little over three pounds and we can't get it on field. They'll say, uh, you didn't pass the test. So we added two pounds of the lead tape to our helmet. We submitted it to the same lab, not a different lab, the same lab. And the score that we got back is that it's a recommended helmet. And there's a lot of politics and money floating around there and some conflicts of interest. And it's interesting stuff. But um, and you probably know this. So if you're a player like Antonio Brown a few years ago, he didn't want to wear a helmet that that was on the list. He wanted to wear a helmet that he had. And Antonio Brown's got a lot of stuff going on in his life. But Mm -hmm. even a guy like Tom Brady, uh, he was struggling with switching to a heavier helmet as well. Well, if you're picking a helmet off off a list, off a lab test, I'd really like to know what's happening on the field if I were a player, right? So if a helmet scores really well on the lab test, you'd expect it to do well on the field. That's not the case. The NFL doesn't even release that data of how the helmets perform on field. So if I have XYZ helmet, and it's number one on the test, you'd expect it to be number one or number two on the field. Not the case. They don't even release that data. And why is that? Because the test is, in my opinion, uh, it's questionable and, and it's relevant. Well, we're seeing all these helmets get heavier. You mentioned you put lead in them to kind of appease to the test. Why is your hypothesis that helmets should actually be lighter? So, you know, when you're in a lab test and the way the NFL test is they have a static head form. It's a hybrid three head form. It's a head form that's used for automotive uh, impact testing. And and they have to use something, right? You know, their goal isn't to get people hurt, right? They're doing their best. But because there's so much money there and there's so much exposure, they, they move in more of a methodical way than I think that they should. And so right now, when I submit my helmet in the form of a 5.2 pound helmet, it's recommended. All it was was lead golf tape. If I submit it as my regular helmet, they'll say, uh, nope, sorry, it doesn't pass the test. Now, when weight, the energy equations, two times the mass and the velocity squared, there's nothing we can do about velocity in football, right? I mean, guys are getting faster 
And that's not going to stop anytime soon. I think somebody broke 24 miles an hour running last year. And it's remarkable that these Olympic quality athletes with all this gear on can do that, right? And this is when you're fatigued and in a game. You're not walking up to the start finish line at the Olympics and running 50 yards and you're done. I mean, these guys are beating each other's asses, right? And you're at 5,000 foot elevation. You're playing in the snow, in the rain. Somebody's, you know, crawling on you all game long. Your hands are beat up from getting hit. So these guys are pretty remarkable. And, um, you know, I think when you when you look at weight, the way these tests are done is you just have a head form that's sitting there and they shoot a pneumatic ram at it. Well, if you take a, gla- a coffee cup and you hold it firm on the table and you slap it, you get one result of what happens on the inside. If you move that coffee cup and slap it with the same force, the internals move differently. So I think they're missing the point here with what's happening in the test and that weight, once my head gets accelerated, let's say a linebacker hits me when I go through the A-gap and my head gets accelerated to the side, there's a lot more energy once that extra weight gets accelerated. In a 30G impact, that two pounds becomes 60 pounds, right? And people will say to me all the time, including people from the NFL, which is just shocking. uh, We're not designing this stuff ourselves on our side. Like we're in the middle of San Diego County. So we use engineering firms that are from the defense space. You know, I got 15 docs in my advisory board. I don't see that necessarily in anybody else's website from our competition, but they'll say, well, if I take a three pound bowling ball and a six pound bowling ball, the six pound bowling ball is going to win. And, and that's accurate, right? But we are adding weight to a head that's part of a system of another 200 220 300 350 pound guy right and your neck is the the fulcrum so when that starts getting slapped around it's like a whip and that weight becomes much more dangerous and the example is if you're going to hit me with a bat the the most damage you can cause is if you hit me with a barrel because it's going the fastest and the most mass is there If I want to mitigate that impact, I want to step toward you, right? Less mass, less speed. So in the lab, if I put an eight-pound helmet together, I'll guarantee it's number one. I could make the thing out of frozen dog shit, and it would be number one. Now, if I have a a two-and-a-half-pound helmet, and it provides impact mitigation better than anything else, it's not going to score well on it because, again, you're just taking, you know, a mass that's sitting there and uh, object at rest tends to stay at rest. And the heavier that object is, the better it's going to perform. And the top four or five helmets are the heavier helmets and the bottom four or five helmets in the NFL test are the lighter helmets. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. So you're focused a lot around the neck. Obviously, the helmet space seems to be a pretty big market. You talked about some acquisitions, suing. Can you just give us a look at the market size of We'll just start in football helmets, but protective headwear as a whole, because it seems like it's a pretty big market. It's a huge industry, right? Like, if you ask me tomorrow, you're like, hey, Nick, I've got a big bag of money here. Um, Go start a helmet company. Would I start in football? Probably not, right? The assets we bought were from guys that had made money in auto racing and motorcycles, snowmobile, etc., And so when we bought that, that's where we wanted to start. And then we realized football's the most visible, right? So in the United States, there's about 5.4 million kids and adults that play tackle football. Uh, About a million of those, 900,000 to a million helmets get purchased every year. And then every two years, the helmets need to be refurbished. Um, They get a sticker on the back that shows that they're current, et cetera, 
just to make sure that they're safe. And, and again, that's a great idea. So that's a pretty big industry. There's Riddell, there's Shut, there's Zenith, which is a smaller company, and then Light. Riddell's probably 70% market share. That's a approximation. But then when you look at, like, you think about hockey, you got two and a half million kids in the U.S. You got another two, three, four million kids around the globe that are playing hockey. Um, that's a huge industry. And those helmets haven't changed really in a long time. Most of the helmets are still made of plastic and they're two-piece design. The padding is pretty thin and narrow. You have lacrosse, you have rugby. Flag football now is creeping up on 10 million kids playing flag football. And that includes touch football, seven man, et cetera. And then look at, you have equestrian, you have rugby. Um, women's flag football is growing rapidly. And uh, it's flag football is going to be an Olympic sport. I think it's in 2028. Yeah. So this head protection space is growing. And coming out of the pandemic, I think one thing that we all realize is that there are a lot of people that are like, I don't want my kid to play football or, or hockey because I'm worried about them getting hurt. And the number of fatalities on the football field are very, very low. And they're usually a result of overheating or some sort of congenital heart defect. And any injury or death on, on in, of any young person is a tragedy. But at the same point, the, the tragedy to me is the kid that's sitting behind the computer 10 hours a day playing video games, that's depressed, that feels left out, that doesn't learn how to be part of a team, um, that doesn't know what it's like to love other guys that have the same goal. And uh, I was just at the American Youth Football uh, Championships down in Florida, and they invited me to come down and talk. And I'm sitting in this room, and I'm an Armenian dude, 100% Armenian. And there's probably 80% African-American dudes sitting in this room. And these the kids are having fun. And these this is like the tip of the spear of these teams. And you're sitting in there, and I'm like, I'm an Armenian dude from Carlsbad. All these guys are from all over the place. It's a Saturday night, right? These guys are volunteers. They're not getting paid to do this. What do we all have in common? We all love football. We all care about the kids. And there isn't a single one of these guys that couldn't be doing something else that would be more fun but they're all there. We all care about the kids. But guess what? All of those kids, and it doesn't matter who's on the team when you walk into the huddle and it's third down and eight. Nobody cares if you're Samoan or you got long hair or short hair. Or you're a Japanese kid or Armenian kid. It doesn't matter. You just want to make the first down. And to me, football and, and to a, a different extent, hockey and soccer across rugby, they're part of the solution of the problems that we have in a society right now and you could stand in that room with those guys all day long and they all came and you know cycled through and we talked about everything from kids football what where does my kid play football etc cetera, etc cetera, and it bonds people together so my risk in my advice to people is yeah your kid can get hurt playing sports but the long-term damage of them being isolated and not outside especially after the last two years of the pandemic um that's a far greater risk, in my opinion. Now, I'm not an expert in that area, but um, you know, my kids have played contact sports. Uh, my younger kid plays at Cathedral Catholic here in San Diego. My older kid works for the football team at the University of Utah. Uh, it's important to, for kids, and I think that getting them out there is, is critical. There's nothing quite like team sports. I mean, it just brings everyone together, and it seems like a big piece of your mission is making sure that the safety tech is top quality to keep kids playing and play longer and there's no long-term effects. But I want to extend off of that because now we have name, image, and likeness and you speak of these young kids. How are you managing this whole new landscape 
And are you signing deals with players? Do you sign with teams? And just how do you view NIL as a whole? It's a great question, right? I mean, there's two parts of NIL. One, I look at the NIL piece, and then you get the portal, which I'll talk about second, right? But the NIL side of things, um, there are kids that are seniors in high school that are made over a million bucks already. Uh, we see kids at some of these youth football organizations that are looking to get signed when they're 13 years old, 14 years old at major universities. Um, you'll see letters to, from a, to a lineman that says, hey, we've got X, Y, and Z organization that put money in because we want the guys to get paid the same amount so there's no animosity between players. And everyone on the line's averaging making 90 grand a year. Well, man, if I were 18 or 19 or 20 years old getting paid 90 year, grand a year, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I'd be like banging my cup against the inside of the jail bars <laughs> because I would have gotten in so much trouble, right? So number one, I think that the kids, when you play a college sport, you're waking up before everybody else. You're getting beat up. You're sacrificing a lot. Football is not from September until January if you're in a bowl. It's it's all year round, and the kids deserve something. But I think the challenge with it is, uh, if you if let's say you're the quarterback at Alabama, you're getting this much money. Where if you're the second string outside linebacker, you're the outside tackle, you're getting this much money. If anything, you might be getting burgers at the at the burger place for free to show up. It can create division in the team, right? So the coaching's got to deal with that. Now you get these kids with a boatload of money. How do you manage that? Should they be getting all of it or should they only get a piece of it? And the rest of it goes in like a 529-ish account. And then the university has to gross that up when the kid graduates. Like there's ways that this can be refined and fixed. And then, of course, I got a million solutions and they all sound great, but they all have challenges as well. But as far as a company, um, you know, I'll use one of our, our, our stars, uh, Cam Rising. Uh, he's a quarterback at Utah. You know, he was uh, knocked out in the Rose Bowl last year wearing a competitive helmet. He got pushed backwards, um, hit his head on the ground, and we were just there watching the Rose Bowl. And I had a race contact that knew his family, and we ended up getting in a dialogue. And, you know, he would have worn the helmet whether we would have done an NIL deal or not. But if we wanted to use his image and we wanted to use his name, you got to cut him a deal per the rules. And you got to look at every state has different rules. So you got to deal with that. But then, you know, because it's got Utah on the helmet on the uniform, I got to deal with that. You got to do a deal with the university. So if you're a bigger company like Rudell, who's done a great job of marketing in the football space, I'm envious of them in that in that area, is is you've already got 70% market share. So you might cut a couple of those deals to get people you want. But for a company like ours, where we're trying to get out in front of people, the cam risings are the key. We've got another you know, group of five or six quarterbacks that we're looking at next year and other players and some high school kids as well. But uh, you got to cut the deal with the kid. You got to cut the deal with the school and you have to have a strategy because if I'm picking seniors, I've only got that kid for one year. And if let's say if Cam gets drafted, right, which which if he decides to, there's no doubt he will. What do I do next year? I can't use any of those images with him in a Utah uniform. It's not relevant anymore. But if I pick a kid that is a sophomore somewhere and he's going to start, right? But, hey, what if that kid gets hurt? And you, God forbid. So now I need enough people out there that I can have relevant people in front. Um, and you know what? There's You see trucking companies using these guys or whatever else. And good for the kids. Go make your money. 
but save your money, right? Like <laughs> it's so easy to go and say, I'm going to buy an expensive car and I'm going to get a cooler apartment. You start burning the cash. And then the problem is, is we all have egos, right? You don't want to step backwards. These kids don't want to say, oh, I got to sell the car that I bought. And we always laugh like Eric Dickerson with the Trans Am back, you know, SMU was paying people before it was cool, right? right. <laughs> so um, the NIL thing, I think is the kids deserve some cash. Uh, I think it's got to be structured differently, and it will be as that thing grows, and there'll be some casualties along the way. Uh, I think the portal is a whole nother issue. You know, I don't know the number, Andrew, you probably do, but I would guess that the majority of the kids that go into the portal don't get picked up by another school. So if you're scholarshiped at XYZ University, and you go in the portal, and you're like, hey, I want to go somewhere else, and then you don't get picked up, what happens when you go back to practice? What do your teammates think, or what do your coaches think? Yeah, I think it was around 30% last year or something like that, or there's a drop off. So I think there's over a thousand kids in the portal already. I'm just curious, would you ever think about, because we're seeing with the, some companies where athletes are now also wanting more than just an endorsement. Would you ever think about if the player was right, actually giving some equity to promote the helmet? Sure. I think that, that there's a way to do that and that, you know, you have to decide as an, as an organization and it's a business decision that you're going to do that. And there's there, you can take a retired guy, like, let's say I'm, I'm picking a name. We've never even had the conversation. Um, but let's say you had a Troy Aikman or a Dan Marino or a John Elway, one of these iconic uh, QBs, right? And are they your spokesperson? Um, we have Jordan Palmer involved with with our company, and he owns a little piece of it. He's helping us consult. He does a lot of great work with NFL quarterbacks, college kids, high school kids, and so, you know. So he's got an, an interest in the company. With other NIL people, the way we would do it is we would split off a piece, and we actually have some shares that are set aside that would be set up for kids to come in and actually you know, take a piece of it. Now you're going to be careful with that because guess what? Now I have a business partner and they may not have a say in day-to-day decisions, but they can make bad decisions or good decisions off the field, on the field. Um, and all of that can impact how the company um, it engages them, how they engage the company and how people perceive the company. So I think you need to diversify your risk when you do that and say, hey, we're putting X number of shares here. We're going to pick 10 people and we're going to allow them. Now, if Tom Brady picked up the phone and called me when we get done with the podcast today and says, hey, give me a couple of points and I'm going to represent it, right? I'm probably going to throw that question to the wind and be a little more aggressive because he's been playing for 21 years. So, um, but it's a great question. And I was just curious about it because you especially see with products that relate directly to athletes, Whoop did a fantastic job with their, their wearable trackers you have fitness, wellness companies, or sports drinks, Body Armor, and Kobe Bryant. I was just curious, I'm from like a helmet standpoint, because I know Aaron Rodgers. He either bought a helmet company or something like that. What, what's the whole story with that again? I'm curious if you know anything about that. There was an investment firm called RX3 that uh, there were three guys that were involved in it. One of them was Aaron Aaron Rodgers, and they put money into Vices and. Vices makes a, a helmet that's got some novel technology to it. We kind of think the shell is cool, but the helmet's a pretty heavy helmet. And initially, you know, like most of the heavy helmets had performed really well in the NFL test, but they spent, I mean, $90 million and they spent a lot of money on marketing and advertising and they actually built a pretty cool brand. Um, the product's performance on field uh, was questionable because, again, the, the weight, but 
uh, the team ended, or the, the company ended up tanking and shut ended up buying them for pennies on the dollar and redeployed the technology. And they're still selling those helmets. Um, but Aaron Rodgers never wore one of those helmets. He was involved in, really? you know, investing in it. And he wears an older shut helmet. I don't remember the model num- model it is, but it kind of goes back to that Antonio Brown spacer, like you'll see Julio Jones or some of these other guys that wear these older helmets. And I don't know if it, I haven't sat and talked to Aaron Rodgers to say, hey, is this related to weight or not? But um, we're pretty confident. I mean, he's a smart guy, right? Um, you know, he's one of the best quarterbacks that's played the game. And I will give him credit in that he will push back on the NFL, whether comes to the vaccine or some of the lockdown things and goes out and slings it. And I don't agree with everything that he says, but I I do credit people that are critical thinkers that are in a position um, where the media can beat up on them for them to come out and have the balls to be able to uh, press back. So I'd love to know, you know, if we're stranded on an Island, I'd want to get it out of them. Like, Hey, why didn't you wear it? But um, you know, there are guys that swear by that helmet, you know, you'll see, um, Patrick Mahomes was, is wearing it. Um, you'll see other guys that switch out of it. I mean, Kittle's wearing the Lyman version of it, the trench, which has got this big, you know, Star Wars thing on the front of it. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. And we will hear with some regularity from people when you are away from the game and off camera that you guys are doing the right thing. Keep going. And uh, we've had numerous, dozens of NFL players that have reached out, past and present, keep going, keep going. You got to push it in this direction. And we're dealing with some of the other pro leagues that are considering it. Um, we talk with the NFLPA with some regularity. Um, I haven't, I won't say that they've bought into the concept, but they do feel that weight's an issue and they're pushing. I don't think that the NFL is uh, against looking at it, but you know, they, they have, they move slowly. If they're off, Hey, we've had this test in place for six years and then we're going to completely change it and go to this when we haven't given the players the information. Think about this. So you saw the guys are wearing the guardian caps in practice, right? Yep. So concussions, and this is on the NFL website. These aren't my numbers. Concussions in practice in the NFL from 2015 to current haven't changed at all. Like they went up one. So in spite of all the tech helmet tech change, in spite of all the investment and all the little companies that the NFL sprinkled money on, it hasn't changed at all, and I'll guarantee that you don't hit as much now as you did in 2015. So why hasn't it gone down? Why haven't concussions gone down? They've gone down in the game because of the rule changes, but the rule changes don't apply to practice. So what did they do to try to, you know, hey, we want to do something. Granted, they're doing something. Slap the guardian head cap on. Well, the guardian head cap that they're using is not the regular guardian head cap that all the high schools ran out and bought. And they didn't make the guys wear it for the whole preseason. They didn't make everyone wear it. So certain positions for a couple of weeks wore it. So you have a very few number of concussions and you had a little bit of a change. And you're like, oh, wow, the Guardian head cap's a great success. Now, I like the Guardian head cap. I really do. And the people that that own that company, I don't know them personally. I think they have their heart in the right place and their science behind it for linemen. But when you get people moving at high speed and you put high friction surfaces on somebody's head, it creates other other issues. So there's a bit of king making going on there, right? Because if you see NFL people where every parent's like, oh, my God, we have to have that for our, <laughs> our kids, too. And they run out and buy it. Now, do you know what works? Do you know what works for all positions or all sorts of impacts? What are the negatives of that? And is that even the same thing that I'm buying? Because I'll tell you right now, 
if you look at a youth list of helmets and there's some uh, defining characteristics, let's just put it that way, that you see on a helmet, there's a helmet that's 150 or 200 bucks and there's a helmet that's 2000 bucks. And if you think because yours has got the little design in the forehead that it's the same as the $2,500 helmet, you're wrong. It's not the same helmet. It's not the same material. But you think that it is. When you look at the NFL list, you're like, oh, little Jimmy's wearing the XYZ. It's not the same XYZ. How much does design play into it? Because you see kids, you know, they want to look cool. And we see all the crazy visors. But where's the, the balance? And how do you guys approach that of looking cool and then also developing the safest helmet on the market? Sure. So when we bought SG the helmets that they were making looked like a bag of ass. I mean, they were ugly. <laughs> the masks were ugly. The shells were ugly. The inside looked like styrofoam. You know, we used an expanded polypropylene, which is a fancy styrofoam, um, just like a combat helmet or, you know, something that a guy that's wearing a, flying the F-22, the liner is very similar. Those are designed for one hit. Ours designed for multiple hits. But uh, we had uh, uh, Mike Haynes, you know, he's a Hall of Famer, top 100 players of all time. He lives in the area, and he was gentleman and good enough just to come in, just to have a conversation. Um, he doesn't have any involvement financially with the company at all. But the first thing he did is put the helmet on, and where's your bathroom? And looked at it in the mirror, right? It's got to look cool. It's got to pass the mirror test. And when we designed our helmet, we you know, we weren't that good. It's just that the first the helmet we bought was that bad. So the LS1 looked better, and the LS2 now looks pretty darn good, and you put a slap of visor in it, and it's really cool. Um, but kids are like, you'll they'll walk up, they're like, where's the F7? You know, it's the, the shut F7. Yeah. Or, you know, is it a flex? Is it a speed flex? And Riddell and Shut have done a great job of styling helmets, and they should look cool, right? Like, nobody wears a, a motorcycle helmet that looks terrible, or even the military helmets, they look cool, right? Now, they're probably more designed for function than anything else, but... Um, you know, I like I like stuff that looks cool. And trust me, I'm like a kid in a candy shop because I can do whatever I want, right? So we'll put helmets together and do all kinds of chrome decals and different face mask dips and pad colors on the inside and chin cups and other things. Um, and But you can make form and function and you can intertwine those two. Um, the cool thing is that we're involved with the coolest sport that's ever been created. And it has a huge following. And there's people that initially said, oh, we don't like the way your helmet looks. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, we like that. We like that the mask's all radio welded. There's no bumps and all the tubes, you know, are nice and smooth. We like the fact that it's, you know, a composite. Um, we think that the inside looks cool. We like those fitment pads. So, you know, you kind of come around to it. Um, we sell Oakley Shields and the Oakley Shield mm -hmm. looks just badass in our helmet. But it looks badass in everybody else's helmet because it's Oakley. So, you know, you, it's hard to go wrong when you got a great uh, partner like that. That's, I would, I never played football. I played flag football. I, uh, one of my regrets is never playing like real tackle football just because I never wanted to get hurt for basketball. But uh, I would have definitely had a visor. That would have been a necessity. I always <laughs> said that I would have had like the black visor, this arm sleeves. I would have been swagged up. Um, that yeah. That's for sure. I guess kind of, I'm very fascinated. I'm conscious of time because I don't like to go too long on these. But I'm enjoying this conversation. There's something I really want to get to before kind of closing this out. Sure. What does the process of building a helmet look like? I'm just so curious from like, there has to be multiple steps to before you reach a final product. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, right? When you look at what it takes to bring any product to market, it's pretty remarkable. So, you know, my hat's off to all of our competitors 
because you, you think about this, that all of us are built a little bit different. Our head shape is different. We're playing at all different levels of play, our, the length of our neck. You're wearing different shoulder pads. Um, you, you think about it, you know, the helmet's getting worn at 5,000 foot elevation, and then it's down at Death Valley. It's getting worn when it's minus 30 degrees at the frozen tundra, and then it's getting worn when it's in Phoenix, Arizona. It's 125 degrees out. So you have all of these different sh- you know, physical characteristics that you have to design around. But what we do is, hey, we want this to be a five-star helmet. We know that we want to be in that low three-pound area because we feel that that's the space where um, it's as light as we can make it and still make it cost uh, or make it affordable for people to buy. We don't have a $1,000 helmet at this juncture, right? We're never going to build a $100 youth helmet, but we're in that that sweet spot. We're like the we're in the BMW space of helmets where we've got a 3 series helmet and a 7 series helmet, but we're not selling Bugattis and Ferraris, right? So cost is a is a is a component of it. Then do you want to make most of the helmet here in the United States or do you want to bring all the components from off? overseas most of our competitors most of the stuff comes from overseas we have a couple of components that come from overseas but a lot of it comes from there's domestically produced then you got to start looking at do i want to build my own chin strap do i want to build my own chin strap snap um what about hardware what is it going to look like so what we basically do is we put some criteria together of got to be a five-star helmet we want it to be in the top five uh we want to make sure that it weighs x X pounds, we know we're going to buy, let's say, a Sports Star chin strap or a Douglas snap on the, on the job pad. And then outside of that, it's it's got to form within these parameters for a varsity helmet, the size wise, and uh, for a youth helmet. And that's where you start. And then we'll go and we'll find a couple of artists and say, based on the last helmet, we want this to be a, a revolutionary makeup in terms of componentry, but I want it to be an evolutionary design so people recognize it as a light helmet. And they do some drawings, and then we'll modify it, do some drawings, and then you do a 3D clay version of it. Then you'll put stickers on it, send it out to get scanned so that it's in the roughly the same space. And then you got to design from the outside in as you do from the inside out because head sizes, right? Like nobody's got a 26-inch head. So you're not designing helmets for that. So once you start drilling down on that, then you still have to look at what materials can I potentially use? And you build all of these things in CAD, obviously, once you get through the design stage. And once you do that, then you can start building some models to test things, uh, you know, in, in, in Cyberland to say, hey, how is this material going to stack up to this material? How thick does this padding need to be? Um Based on people's jaw width side, how, you know, can I, with this shell space, am I going to have enough space for padding? So you go through all those permutations, and then you start building actual physical prototypes and putting them on people to move around with shoulder pads. Uh, And then you take those and you design closer to what you're going to have on field, and you start impact testing those, and then you test them in cold and hot, when they're wet, when they're dry, um, and then durability tests. So there's a long string of things. And think about for a second, like, people will be like, gosh, that F-35 fighter plane costs so much money. And it's like, (laughs) bro, do you know how many systems are in that thing that's got to operate when it's 70 degrees below zero and 18-year-old kid's going to change the engine in a sandstorm and that, uh, you know, it's going to last for 50 years and there's all these different forces on it and they're going to make changes to technology that have to fit in this thing that we haven't even thought of yet. So 
I'm not smart enough to be in that space, but a lot of those companies are right around here. So we find the engineers that build hmm. pieces and parts for those, and that's who designs our stuff. Yeah, so you have the Silicon Valley type, you know, benefit of technology because of the military around you. And that's actually funny. You made me laugh about the the head size thing a little bit because I remember seeing, I don't know if you remember Casey Hampton, but he was a huge, yeah. like, 330-pound lineman for the Steelers. And I remember seeing him in person once and being like, how does that dude's head fit in a helmet? Like his thing is, his, he had just a huge noggin. I was like, that, that's crazy. Nick, I've enjoyed this conversation. I always like to end it on just a pretty simple question for everyone to see the trends of where do you see sports, the sports market as a whole going in the next six to 12 months? Well, you know, you look at Nike and Under Armour and a lot of these bigger companies, they're getting away from dealers in, in the middle. And I think dealers offer a lot of benefits, um, but the direct-to-consumer model gives you bigger margins, you control the messaging, you can customize things where they don't have to go through a middle person, um, you can get product out quicker, you gather so much more analytics data uh, related to someone, especially when you're partnering with other companies. Um, you know, you think about that component of it, the direct-to-consumer piece is, is huge, and it's only going to get, um, what should I say, uh, more, I don't want to say invasive, but where they're going to customize what's not only being offered to you, but, hey, if I know a kid is eight years old and here's his head size and this is what he bought, five years ago nobody was saying, hey, that kid's now nine. His head, based on science, has only grown this much. Um, he was on a team in this area and these are the teams that are around there. Is that what I'm going to pop up to him with the right color? So it's even the, the team that's in the zip code that he's at for the public school. Like all of that customized marketing and custom product is is growing. Um, the NIL piece is going to continue to grow where you're going to be able to buy influence because every NIL deal isn't always a million bucks, a hundred thousand, twenty thousand bucks. It can be like, hey, you get free uh, car washes or or you get a uh, you know milkshakes at at the place down the street. And being able to look at how many influencers does someone have. We've got some kids that are nine years old that have 750,000 influencers that are wearing our helmet. And when you meet these kids, they're more mature than I was when I was 54 <laughs> years old six months ago, right? Like, and, and they're great kids. But but the, the, the beautiful thing about it is that people are learning earlier about about business, about economics, about how things work. There's a negative component to that because the kid that doesn't get some of those things can feel left out. Um, and, and that's just the real world, right? Like mm -hmm. I'd love to be a billionaire, I'm not. Um, and setting the dream or having the goal of, hey, I wanna have X, Y, or Z, that doesn't get you there. But how do I break that down to manageable steps so that I can accomplish that? And all of these different companies that now, the bigger companies that can cater to individuals, um, they're gathering information and they're coming out with new products much faster. But I think you're also going to see, um, you know, we go back to Moneyball or I don't know what the name of the company is right now that's working with the NFL on statistics and advanced data. Sport radar. That's it. That's it. But yeah. now with gambling coming into play, like how's that going to change things, right? And gambling being legalized in the United States. And people say, oh, my God, you know, I hearken for the good old days. Well, hey, guess what? The country was tearing itself apart in the early 70s, right, in, in the late 60s. And people back then probably said the exact same thing. You know, it's the United States, and we do a great job of adapting. 
Um, sometimes you feel like we're void of leadership, but uh, leadership really comes down to the fact that we live in a, a place that has an economic system in a political system that allows things to head in a certain direction. And the general population moves at different speeds, but I think a lot of times they still feel that there's a, a right and a wrong, and corporate America has to follow through. So um, the big changes are going to be how people are marketed to, how people get compensated, how data is collected. Um, but I also think there'll be consolidation because you're going to see some of these dealers go away like BSN or Varsity's buying a bunch of dealers. Um, you'll see Dick's, because they're already out there with 700 stores, get more into the helmet space and customization where before you just see them having a white helmet. So those are probably the biggest places I see change. Wow. Yeah, Nick. I mean, you hit the, the nail on the head on that one with so many points. I mean, the direct-to-consumer, NIL, gambling data, all huge. I, I see the same things. Um, and very interesting take kind of on uh, – the state of the country even but i really appreciate you coming on it's great to have a conversation not only about helmets but just kind of the future of sports so thanks again you bet andrew love being on the show and uh i think you do some great work and we'd be happy to come back on again as events warrant thanks again